Bonjour à tous. Good morning, everyone. In the matter of Association de Médiation Familiale du Québec versus Isabelle Bizaillon et al. For the appellant, the Quebec Family Mediation Association, Sylvie Sherm and Marie-Hélène Tremblay. For the respondent, Michel Bouvier, Joanne Biron, and Emily Kissel. Ms. Sherm. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. This morning, you are called upon to decide whether the principles of settlement privilege, the settlement exception, as set out in Union Carbide, are applicable in the context of family mediation. You must also decide whether the summary of matters agreed upon is admissible in evidence. I will de with, deal with the settlement exception and my colleague Marie-Hélène Tremblay, who is also an accredited mediator, will deal with the issue of the admissibility of the summaries. Uh, excuse me for interrupting you, Ms. Sherm. Ms. Sherm. I have a question. Sorry to interrupt you at this point, but I'd like you to indicate to me at some point what your thinking is about my thinking currently. I've always felt that mediation, whether it was family mediation or commercial or civil mediation, the goal was to enable the parties to settle their dispute at a low cost in a reasonable amount of time. In family mediation, it's even more true because there are higher stakes uh, there are humans involved, the spouses and the children. And so it's a bit ironic Perfect. when the goal, particularly in family mediation, is to achieve a settlement, why you wouldn't be able to prove that there was a settlement. Answer, that's a matter of evidence, Chief Justice. It's, a, it's a, an issue of evidence. But the context must still be protected, the context in which these settlements are arrived at. And that context is confidentiality. And the goal of mediation and of the legislator is to create a space where people can discuss all kinds of subjects and try to find solutions in a safe place where the parties know that whatever they say, whatever documents they exchange, those will not be filed in evidence before a court. It's too confidential. Confidentiality is the cornerstone of this process, and it must be protected at all costs. And that is what the parties understand. That's what they're given to understand when they embark on this process. Question. Well, given that the, the idea is to achieve a settlement, yes, indeed, the idea, the goal, is to achieve a settlement. And there's a settlement when the parties agree. But when one of the parties doesn't feel there was any settlement, then there is no settlement. And there should be no presumption of a settlement when there isn't a true agreement between the, the parties. In other words, in your opinion, uh, union carbide should not apply in a family mediation context. That's what we're asking, Chief Justice. We're asking you to decide is that it should not apply. 
the whole the situations are entirely different, entirely distinguishable. The Union Carbide is about personal watercraft fuel tanks, uh, and here we're dealing with a family situation with child support, custody, and the future of the family in question, where a number of decisions have to be made and discussions have to be held. These two contexts cannot be compared. And, and so the context is completely different. And I would refer you to tab three of our contents book which says negotiations in the context of separation or divorce must be done in a confidential setting. And it's a very intense situation where the parties may feel particularly vulnerable. And that is the reality in family law as we understand it. Ms. Sherm, I agree with you that the context of commercial mediation is not the same as family mediation. No problem there. But I don't think we should be limited to just looking at the context. When you go into mediation, whether it's commercial or family or what have you, the goal, if you're acting in good faith, is to reach a settlement, to settle the dispute. So even if there are differences in the two contexts, what is motivating the parties is the same, and the motivation is to reach a settlement. And isn't that important? Because your position seems quite absolute. I agree with you that whatever you say in mediation and the documents and the discussion, if there's no agreement, yes, obviously that's confidential. But given that the goal is to reach an agreement, if ultimately there is an agreement, because the, by the consent of the parties, you're seeming, you seem to be taking the position that it should never be possible for one of the parties to this deal to have that deal adduced in evidence. Is that your position? Answer, yes, you're right, Justice Cote. But in this case, there was no agreement. In this particular case, there was no settlement. If there had been, then all these procedures would not have followed. Yes, but do, for there to be a deal, are you, are you suggesting there has to be a signed contract? Or can it just be a consensual agreement? Well, if there was an agreement, there would be no litigation. So if the parties reach an agreement and they implement that without going before the court, great, so be it, because there's no litigation. There's no dispute in that case. But if someone wants to protect uh, something, well, then they go to court and they get the deal homologated or approved by the court, made official so that it has the force and effect of a court order. But there's, when, there's no agreement until there is an agreement. And when it comes to proving whether there's an agreement, that's a matter of evidence. In this case, the veil of confidentiality was lifted. The parties were examined on what had happened. There were excerpts from what the mediator had said. The summaries were produced. And then all of that was used to conclude that there was an agreement. That's the danger to breach, the, to lift the veil of confidentiality. Okay, so we're talking about the 
ex post facto conduct of the parties, the fact that the husband's checks were cashed and the, 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 the former wife had actually referred to those documents in her conversations. Yes, but that should have never been allowed in evidence. That was all confidential. It's all part of the mediation process. So the checks prove that a payment was made. You can write anything on a check, and that's not proof of any evidence, in my opinion, and, and proof of any agreement. There should have been an application for partition, and the debate could have been held, and then Mr. Bouvier could have argued that he paid $20,000. That could have been adduced in evidence. But what happened here is a farce. It's the opposite. The confidentiality was breached. And in these cases, the parties expect confidentiality. And that's uh, to be found everywhere in our legislation. That's the expectation of the parties. And that's why we're asking that the exception, the settlement exception, be not applicable in family mediation. Isn't the party's expectation also that our civil code rules be applied? Answer, in the context of family mediation, well, don't the rules of law from the civil code apply nonetheless? No, Chief Justice, when you embark on family mediation, you expect that everything that happens will be confidential. Same thing goes for the mediator, the members of the, our association. They need to know what they're getting into as well. Should a mediator be worried that what he or she writes uh, in his notes could wind up before a court? No. The mediator is not a counsellor. People are not represented in mediation. And if there is an agreement that's reached, there are ways of confirming that. But it shouldn't be allowed for all that evidence to be filed in court and for the confidentiality, uh, uh, the confidence of the public to be breached as well. If a potential party asks, okay, I want to get, I want mediation, but is it confidential? If the answer is, well, yes, maybe, but it depends, uh, because we mustn't forget that family mediation is part of a continuum. There's a whole process. And a family breakdown doesn't happen overnight. So often people go into mediation one, five, five, one time, five times, ten times, over a period of time. They'll settle certain things. They'll test certain things. They'll try to see how they can pay off their debts. Some attempts or some potential solutions are tried, and people may continue in their relationship. So that intimacy should not be broken. Ms. Nantel, uh, Justice Nantel quoted from a decision in, in her decision. And it was in that decision, it's provided that you can waive confidentiality through your post-agreement conduct or post-mediation conduct. Do you agree with that decision? I don't disagree with it, but I would say that the facts do not apply. In the La Bonté case, that was a document that the woman had signed in the context of the process, and there was never any objection to the waiver of confidentiality. And so I don't think the two cases are comparable. La Ferrière and La Bonté is different. 
So if there is a waiver, it has to be crystal clear. The parties know if the if the parties yes. do something to confirm that there's a deal, that's one thing. But you're not supposed to sign the summaries. But if the parties do sign the summaries, the summaries of matters agreed upon, then it could be concluded that yes, indeed, there was a, a, a waiver. But if the conduct post-mediation is evidence, for example, the cashing of checks, is, if that's evidence of an agreement, there is a case that says that if it can't be determined what the goal of the contract was, we'll look at how the parties conducted themselves. So that's a bit what's happening here. Notwithstanding the fact that the summaries were not signed per se, the behavior of the parties would indicate many judges have been led to conclude that there was indeed a settlement under the circumstances and that it should be implemented. That's a traditional, a classic civil approach. That's what the trial judge used, that's what the Court of Appeal used, but in our submission it should not be used when it comes to family mediation. And the conduct of the parties in this case are, we're talking about an email and some checks. That does not confirm anything. It's related to the mediation, and so it should be excluded from any possibility of being entered into evidence. It doesn't mean that people can't agree on things. Obviously, they can, but those agreements have the, the confidential, confidentiality surrounding those agreements must be respected at all times. And I would draw your attention to tab. Tab 5 of our condensed book. The second last paragraph. This is what the parties see when they're entering into mediation. It's free. It's subsidized by the government, so it must be important, and it's confidential. So a lay person, it says mediation is comprehensive or partial. It allows ex-spouses to settle their disputes, but the last sentence says mediation is closed, that is confidential. Nothing of it, none of its contents may be used in evidence before a court. In its report, the mediator simply states that the parties were present and where agreement was reached. There's no other information given. So what we're to understand what the parties understand is that everything they say, even admissions, concessions, if you will, if a person says, I, rec I acknowledge that I don't have a very good relationship with our oldest child. Now, the parent would never say that in court for fear of losing access. I have a, a question for you. Assume it's not the case here. Assume it's not the case here. but if one of the parties were not acting in good faith, but there was a deal, there was a settlement reached after mediation, family mediation, so if there was truly an agreement, but then afterwards, one of the parties, if one of the parties were to say, I just want to cause trouble and say that there was no deal, are you saying that never, under no circumstances, would it be possible, because it's family mediation, for the, the party acting in good faith to try to establish that, yes, indeed, there was a deal? Answer, I would say no, because 
otherwise confidentiality would be breached. And the other way around, the party in bad faith could use mediation as a way to, for example, even the testimony that was adduced before the Court of Appeal, obviously that was a breach of confidentiality. So if a party, uh, if the, a party does want to have their rights respected, there are other recourses, there are other remedies, they can go to court. But the term agreement, it's, it's tricky because we use agreement with, with very legal connotations, but that's not what we're talking about in the family context. A while ago, you said that if the summary is signed, there will be an exception. Let me send you to your summary of the agreements on page 105 of the joint file. I'm following up on the Chief Justice's comment. Besides the signature, it says the same way we want to inform you that the implementation or all or part of the agreement also produces legal effects. Meaning that such implementation may be acknowledgement of the agreement reached before reaching out to court. So you have raised some good points but some bad facts. I believe this explains why all Court of Appeal, all the Court of Appeal judges looking at the evidence filed agreed that the principle of confidentiality doesn't help you in this case. And Justice Moore arrived at the same conclusion. So we understand your desire for when it comes to the fact that mediation is a specific issue. Now, when it comes to advancing your point of view in circumstances where the rules of evidence and your own contract opened the door to Justice Ock's conclusion, which was the same as what Justice Doyon said in spite of the fact that he was questioning the other facts. Justice Ock said that even though there was no summary of agreement, she would have arrived at the same decision. And this is somewhat disturbing for our members because this means that this will be based on the evidence, the testimony of the parties on what happened during mediation. Justice Kazura, let me submit that by saying that facts are evident means that those things would never have happened, that the summary of agreements would never have been produced, the email would never have been filed in evidence in that case. Once we see that one of the parties raises a red flag and says there's no agreement or that is not what I understood, let's not forget that this is a process where there's no legal counsel. We are not accompanied from the beginning to the end. So when one of the parties says, I don't believe there's an agreement, we should not breach that confidentiality. And we should conclude that there was no agreement. What will people say? It's, in it's like cases where people go to mediation and then there's no agreement and then they go to court or they opt for other avenues or, and they ask their lawyers to negotiate. In his brief, page 74, we see examples of cases in the Superior Court which 
applied the settlement exception. Were all these judges mistaken by applying the settlement exception when they refer to what happened in mediation? With due respect for my colleague, this case law doesn't support that. In none of those cases did we, did we see similar cases. There were Sierra cases. We didn't see a summary of agreements tabled and considered in those judgments. So the cases are so different from what you have before you. Sometimes there are cases where both parties tabled summary, a summary of agreements to say this is what we, what we want to do. This is not the case before you today. Saying that you want to protect vulnerable people in a case, in a way that Union Carbide will not do, will that be affected if you distinguish between an agreement on the one hand and a transaction on the other hand? And reading your brief and looking at the use of terminology, in my opinion, an agreement not only in civil cases but in procedural cases contains commitments and highlight cases for the settlement but this is this is not a transaction this agreement is not a transaction unless the circumstances lead in that direction so that is how vulnerable people are protected not through an exception not through a settlement privilege exception. As the Chief Justice said, if we waive that exception, we would somewhat, somewhat compromise the effectiveness of mediation as a way to settle disputes. Don't you find that you are focusing on the wrong idea? No, Your Honor. Let me underscore that just Justice Moore in his, her judgment said, there was no possibility of a transaction. However, he found another way to order the parties to respect the agreement. In support of the first instance judge, he established a difference between an agreement and a transaction where during homologation, legality is controlled by saying that in, agree in agreement, we look at the content. In family matters, he clearly stated that there can be no transaction. It's not right when you say that Justice Ogg did what you said. The issue was not directly before her as the issue was raised. It was not in the same way it was raised in the Court of Appeal. In this case, the result is the same. The result is the same. Let me submit that the issue of vulnerability has to do with someone who doesn't have the resources to be assisted by legal counsel during mediation. So vulnerability also lies at this level. So there's, there's a problem because the different parties have different uh, powers. We should consider the fact that 
because of the vulnerability here, the pursuit huh? continued. The dispute existed. These people went right to the Court of Appeal and the case has ended up before you again. Once again, if we read the applicable rules attentively, the Civil Procedure Code provides for specific protections for family mediation when, for example, the mediator says that a draft agreement could hurt one of the parties or the children, and C-118 says that there are some limitations, something that doesn't apply in commercial cases. There are no limitations set. So I believe that you are going too far ahead, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Not in family mediation justice. The purpose of this agreement, and I'll give the opportunity to my colleague to talk about the summary of the agreement. The purpose is to close the door to any possible court cases in the future. The purpose is to enlighten everyone. If you read the reminder contained in the summary of the agreement written by the mediator, a third person, if you look at the reminder, it's, several things are st stated. It's confidential. You are not f filing anything in court. It, it could be interpreted as implementation. Paragraph 16 of Justice Dwayne's judgment in tab 9 of our condensed book, it says that no ignorance of the law is no excuse. And when we talk about information, people refer to access to information, websites, the civil procedure codes, and so on. All this cannot be produced because you cannot be represented by legal counsel during mediation sessions. So the process is confidential because this is provided for in the mediation contract, which is signed at the beginning of the process. But they are not informed of the existence of an exception or the need to exclude it clearly if they don't want the exception to apply. So we cannot say that a lame person going through separation or divorce, and we do know that these are the most difficult circumstances that people sometimes go through in their lives, these family breakups. So we cannot imagine that people will be thinking of this at that time. So to say that the exception is a clear message, making sure that we we'll avoid judgments where we hear testimonies of the parties and so on. What else should be done? The mediator should be called to testify. Let me come back to our discussion at the very beginning. Two parties go for mediation. They don't have a choice because they need to go to a mediator as required by the Quebec law. They need to go there. They must go through a certain number of sessions. So two parties embark on mediation. I agree with you up to that point. If there's no agreement, if there's no meeting of the minds at the end, it's confidential, it cannot be used. Let's suppose then we are dealing with a case where we have two spouses. There's a meeting of the minds on the issues that led to mediation. For a number of years, the parties act in accordance with the meeting of the minds. At some point, one of the parties says, I think I should have asked for more during mediation. 
I would go to court. Is it still your position that the other spouse cannot say, wait a minute, during mediation, this is what happened, and it is on the basis of that that I carried out my obligations. Are you saying that that evidence cannot be tabled? Madam Justice, what is possible is evidence on the facts following that. If someone, hardly one year, hardly one year after, with spousal support of about $500, comes up and asks for more, the evidence should be presented that the payment was done. That is possible. But why the $500? Why did she ac accept less? Why did the man not accept to pay more? All that is protected because these are discussions. Otherwise, we'll open the door for everyone and people with bad faith can come and change what they are agreed upon. How should evidence be tabled? It is provided for in the law that confidentiality is important and it has to be protected at all costs. And people need to know that everything being discussed here is confidential. If you believe you have an agreement, then do what you need to do. If an agreement goes on for three years, the situation then will be presented in evidence. Let, let, the example given by my colleague is very good. Let me remind you of the example of maintenance. That could be checked by the courts. And the agreement in the form of an, a transaction cannot resolve the matter. Your concern seems to be ill placed by talking about absolute confidentiality you may compromise you may compromise the family mediation you are seeking to protect yourself so that is what i why i believe your position is ironic as the chief justice said with due respect my position is the contrary the family mediation process will be compromised if confidentiality is affected. And so will be the professionals who do the job because they will have to ask themselves what they need to do, what measures they have to take to protect confidentiality. It's the same thing when we advise our clients. We'll have to tell them that confidentiality is no longer the way we thought it was. If you don't have any further questions, I will now give the floor to Ms. Marie-Hélène Tremblay who will talk about the summary of, of the agreements now. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The Court of Appeal found that the summaries of matters agreed upon could be entered into evidence and all the testimony that went along with it to establish the terms and conditions. Well, to prove first that there was a settlement and what its terms and conditions were. And in our submission, that was a mistake. Uh, a heavy, a, a mistake with a lot of consequences because confidentiality is so key to our system 
and when parties are invited to enter into mediation, they're promised confidentiality. Justice Cote, you mentioned earlier that this process of mediation is compulsory. It's the, the, the hours are actually optional. And so it's just the information session, the initial session that is compulsory. And to help you decide this issue, it might be helpful to look at the nature of these summaries. What is the origin of this type of document? So it's suggestion. a mandatory document. It's a suggestion that uh, the association that accredits mediators came up with. And at tab seven of our condensed book, you'll find a, a document, a guide produced by the COAMF because mediators come from various backgrounds. Some are legally trained, others are not. And so this committee of accrediting uh, bodies produced this guide. And if you look at page 24, it's, it's a reference tool to guide the parties. And it's a consultation document as well. And a reference for drafting agreements that may eventually go before courts. So the, there is no standard form summary, at, for, but it just sets out some warnings and reminders. But there is a, a template for a mediation contract. So this is a working tool and it's a document that is presented to the parties as such, as a working tool. It's not compulsory, as I said, but most mediators will include the reminders and warnings that say that this is not a contract and it cannot be filed in evidence. That's what the warning says. Ms. Tremblay, in the defense of the parties, who may be a bit confused about the legal weight of this document. If you look at the summaries of matters agreed upon, you'll see at page 99 that the mediator, who's a lawyer, and I don't mean this as a criticism, a personal criticism, but the mediator said in the middle of the page that the couple had reached an agreement as a result of uh, an overall thought process or brainstorming session. And he described the agreement as a draft agreement. And then at the bottom of page 101, when he talked about any review as a result of significant changes in one of the party's situations. So the confusion stems in part not from the law but from the documentation on record and maybe in many records but the once again both the civil law and the case law are very clear on what 
constitutes an agreement. Very clear. So I'm wondering if this is not helping you elucidate the point you're trying to make or the conclusion you'd like us to arrive at. I think the, conclusion, the, the confusion stems from the name of this document because the context of family mediation is all important here. There's a breakdown in the relationship, a social breakdown, a legal breakdown, and what's important for the parties is to have a place where they can discuss their problems. And this document, which is produced by a third party, sometimes the parties sign it, sometimes they don't. The document should be perhaps entitled the summary of contemplated solutions because that's what we do in mediation the parties explore potential solutions and so to give this document an official role as an agreement as if the parties had signed it the document also includes a waiver for example, the woman could have got $250,000 for the house, but she accepted a lower amount. This is a very simplistic summary, but did she know what she was doing really when that solution was contemplated? Did she realize that the mediator was going to write that down in a document and that the Court of Appeal would then assume that that constituted an agreement? Well, in the Court of Appeals defense, they didn't say that the document constituted uh, an agreement. Justice Hogg said that in the circumstances, I feel that a party could oppose this, uh, and in paragraph 103, she said, I would say that a written document that's not admissible to prove a legal deed can sometimes be allowed in evidence to prove a legal fact. So it seems to me that Justice Hogg did not say that a summary is an agreement. She saw it as a fact that would support a finding that there had been an agreement. Well, in fact, what she did when she presumed that she did describe the summary as a simple document a written document, a piece of writing. Justice Hogg defined it as a simple piece of writing drafted by a mediator reflecting his understanding of what the parties might have agreed to. And so she said that legal facts could be proven using that document. But she used the document, the summary, to allow the testimony and then it was found that there was an agreement. But all of that should have been confidential. The summary of matters agreed upon, we mustn't forget, Justice Moore, in his decision, found that the, the starting point for the judicial partition of the property was the date on which the parties signed the summary. Now, yep. in our submission, everything that refers to mediation should be excluded from evidence, even the email that referred to an agreement and even the cash checks. But if that, if the summary had never been allowed in evidence, 
then there would be no basis for concluding that there was any agreement. And what uh, Ms. Bizayon said in her testimony was that it was her understanding that mediation had, was not even finished. It was her understanding was, was that they hadn't finished the mediation. They'd used up their five free hours and then the mediator was just taking stock of where they'd gotten to by that point. So is a document that she didn't even draft, is she to be bound by that? When she didn't even think mediation was over, it's our submission that the answer should be no. An unsigned document written by a third party cannot be evidence of a deal. And we have to remember why these summaries are produced. They're produced to indicate that the mediation has wrapped up, but wrapped up from the perspective of the mediator, from the person drafting the summary, because the parties, they often may continue discussing things outside mediation. They may come back to mediation. They may, they may go on indefinitely. So one of the goals of a summary is to allow the parties to take that document and then go see legal counsel because many mediators are not legal counsel, are not legally trained. So if you take the summary to be the ultimate deal, then you're neutralizing the right of one of the parties to then go and get legal counsel. And that's what happened here. Question, no, that's not quite what happened. The Court of Appeal was very specific. The emails and the checks constitute a initial evidence. They're the start of the evidence. And if you look at the law of evidence, you can't tell me that it doesn't apply to a family context. We have to speak very specifically here. I know that you don't agree with the conclusion, but all the same, the judge clearly understood that this was a simple written document, a piece of writing, and that testimony could not be used at the outset, but she took a very careful look at the evidence, the law of evidence, and the facts are quite frankly not helpful to your argument. With all due respect, it can't be concluded that there was a deal in the context of family law. For, for example, Ms. Bizayon's email she said, you paid me 5000 I thought it was supposed to be $20 million by January 1st. So there's one email that says something like that. So given the expectation of confidentiality that parties have when they enter into mediation, that's the issue that's at stake here. The respondent will say, no, actually, it's the opposite. People uh, won't believe in mediation, but it's our position that the main attraction of mediation is its confidentiality this protected space where the parties can talk about their fears for their children and for, their f for the future. So if that confid confidentiality is breached, that initial evidence that you referred to, Justice uh, Cazier, that too should be protected. Everything that comes out of mediation should be protected. 
to answer Justice Cote's question from earlier. If the parties have an agreement and they decide not to sign a document and they don't see fit to have their deal approved by the court or homologated, and then years later support payments are made and so on, and suddenly one party decides to sell their house for $200,000 and they go to the notary, the warning in the summary of matters agreed upon, that's what it says. This is not a contract. Go get legal counsel. But if you do certain things, and those things can be proven, if it can be established that the husband paid so much on such and such a date, uh, and you can prove that the, the, the property was sold, but you can't hearken back to what was said in mediation and what amounts were agreed to in mediation. Why would a party enter into family mediation then? Why wouldn't they take their chance and go to court? Because at any rate, the party yeah. can't expect it to produce results. Anything could happen and you can't prove that there was ever an agreement. What I, I know that you're taking the point of view of a party who takes the position that the terms of the agreement are confidential. But take the perspective of a party acting in good faith that goes into mediation to avoid costs and, and delays and so on. Why would they do that if they knew that no matter what you say or sign, there's, there'll always be a way of opening it back up before the courts. Uh, so everything you do in mediation could just uh, be pointless because it can all be rehashed in court. Well, that's not quite what we're saying. What we're saying is that whatever is discussed in mediation will be protected. But if you're fearful about mediation, if you're fearful that if an agreement is reached, for example, there's the famous expression, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, does it make a sound? So if there's a deal and a party changes their mind, was there really ever a deal? It's our position that if there is a dispute about whether there was an agreement or the terms and conditions, it should be assumed that there was no agreement. You shouldn't breach confidentiality to try to understand the terms of what might have been agreed upon because those are just potential solutions. And if someone's afraid that that might happen, if someone's afraid that if they get into mediation, they might be wasting their time, well, then the solution is simple. Just sign an agreement. And if you look at the dispute, if somebody wants to take the matter to court, they will. If someone wants to truly discuss and brainstorm about solutions, that's what family mediation is there for. We mustn't forget that there's a a parental dimension to this and but it's available to couples without parent without children too but initially it was only for couples with children but the idea is to allow that parental relationship to continue beyond the relationship breakdown even if we were to say that the exception, the union carbide exception were to apply in family cases, if someone is not happy 
with the co-parenting relationship, they will find reasons to go to court if that's what they want. Question. I don't want to overload you with questions, but you are not at all answering the question put to you by the Chief Justice. You're saying, let's say we get to an agreement, and your counterexample is what happens if the parties have not really arrived at an agreement. Let's imagine a situation where there is a real agreement that ends a dispute, and we cannot show evidence of that agreement. That's a problem for family mediation. The union carbide exception will help family mediation. Your desire or concern for, vulner for vulnerable people is protected because that agreement cannot be done. Contrary to the union carbide case, a commercial party can do anything. Taking at your, looking at the example of co-parenting, that's not a concern. It's not an agreement that will solve the problem once and for all. During homologation, a judge would look at it and see if it's in the interest of the child. It's not really a problem what you're presenting. And the consequence, as the Chief Justice said, is that family mediation will be undermined if your argument goes to the extreme. Answer, what we are submitting is that that agreement arrived at during mediation should be verified by the parties over time. And for that reason, we cannot presume that a summary of the agreements written by a third party would be a true representation of the terms. Question. You may be right if we only had the summary. But if the summary is dated 10th December 2012, and as you said before, the summary produced by the mediator is the end of the mediation, even if the party did not understand. What we're talking about is sharing the building. We're not talking about the kids. She waited for two years, October 2014, to question the agreement. So maybe if nothing had happened, but between the end of signing of the agreement, if before the signing of the agreement, or after the signing of the agreement, the parties behave in a way for us to believe that there was an agreement when it came to sharing of the building. Let me add, are you not mixing up summary and agreement? It's the summary of the agreements. Let's not mix up the issues. There is an agreement which is not necessarily written down by the mediator. My colleague's question is very relevant. Answer, what shows that the lady really had the intention to be bound by the agreement? The purpose of mediation is exploring options. Maybe she was thinking that it will work out with 85,000, but what she said later during testimony was, yes, I received the check because I had difficulty because I had not worked for three years. I had left my job to take care of the kids, and I needed money at that time, so I cashed out the checks. What we are submitting respectfully is that we should never presume that there is an agreement. The summary of the agreements cannot confirm the fact that there was an agreement. 
In the same way, in this case, if there had been an agreement, there could have been a transfer done before a notary to homologate this uh, famous agreement by the mediator. When there's an agreement, people act accordingly. In this case, what she did was cash out a check because she needed it for her support. How far can we go if we allow production of a summary of the agreements? Shall we also ask the mediator to testify? That was never an issue in, the other, in other cases. When the summary of the agreement is produced against a party to demonstrate the existence of a party, will that party have the right to be cross-examined? That's the reason why we do not need to get there. That is why in Union Carbide, there was no need to get to that extent. We, we limited ourselves to the main elements. Was there an agreement or not? What were the facts in this case? The actions taken by the parties after the supposed agreement shows that indeed there was an agreement. I'm referring to the Supreme Court decision of 1938. The context is totally different. In Union Carbide, there were offers, post-mediation offers made, and the dispute concerned one of the terms. Here, how do we know And there's an argument that has been used by the respondent Bouvier saying that there was no objection. How do we know? How can we consider that document as a desire to be bound Ma by the terms stated in it? There is no guarantee of reliability. There is no guarantee as well that those were the discussions made during mediation. There is no guarantee that those discussions were understood. The, our guide says that the parties have to take the document and then go seek legal opinion because the presence of legal counsel is prohibited. Question, a while ago, Justice Kazira referred Madam Shum to the last page of the summary, which we found in page 97 in the appellant's uh, brief we want to inform you that implementation of all or part of the agreement could produce legal effects so anything implemented could be considered acknowledgement of the agreement before any court action so should this paragraph be ignored answer it should not be ignored but it is confusing what is meant is it that if you get an agreement on the house and you go to the notary to transfer the house, you receive $200,000? Is that what we're talking about? Or are we saying if you agree on child support, the man pays $500,000, there's going to be an acknowledgement? Is that what we're talking about? This warning is not in the mediation contract signed by the parties. This warning can only be found in the document that is handed over to the parties and which also includes clauses saying it's not a contract, it cannot be filed in evidence. So our interpretation of the matter is that some actions could have consequences like establishing a status quo, but this does not in any way 
require that confidentiality be breached, confidentiality which is the cornerstone of mediation. Let me let you conclude. I was going to say that with respect, what we are submitting is that we ask you to presume that, that the privilege exception is never applied during mediation. If you do that, tabling of the summary will never be raised unless with the consent of both parties. Question, I wonder if you are free for nothing. Let me come back to the confusion between agreement and transaction. In your brief, you consider Union Carbide as having mixed up privilege and transaction. And in 77 and 78, you say that the summary of agreements was allowed the first judge to consider it a transaction in spite of the principle of confidentiality. That's not the case. Justice Moore did not confuse transaction. He knew clearly that transaction could not be considered in cases of public policy. Transaction, transaction was the, at the heart of Union Carbide. You are trying to undo a rule that has to do with transaction by attacking a privilege that has to do with agreements. There again, that's confusing, don't you think? Do you see the distinction? I understand your distinction, Mr. Justice. There was a request made afterwards by the lady. She asked for child custody and it was homologated by Justice Moore at first instance. What we are saying is that he says he recognizes the global context of mediation. Several matters are discussed and there's a possibility of a transaction as well. But he considers that there was an agreement which he homologates. Then he comes back to the facts that could have allowed the court to establish the terms. The terms were established by breaching confidentiality, by looking at the summary of the agreements, and by allowing testimony. There was even contradictory testimony, but the summary of the agreements was what was retained. And that is what is totally outrageous, in our opinion. It's not the role of the mediator. The role of the mediator is to facilitate discussions and to allow for those discussions. There are mediators who are not legal experts. So can such a mediator, or rather such a mediator cannot counsel or advise the parties. They simply discuss possible solutions and he tell them, Yen, you go consult. And this was not allowed in this case. Madam Tremblay, I have a question to ask you relating to cost. You are asking us to grant costs on the basis of lawyer-client privilege. In your brief, you say that each party should pay their costs. Let me ask you a question. Considering the nature of the dispute, where it's the association and not the lady, who is prolonging the case and who brought 
Mr. Bouvier to court, why should he pay for expenses, court expenses? Answer, the intervention of the intervener was limited by Justice Beauclair to confidentiality, the scope of confidentiality and the nature. And that is, that is what is before you, the limited mandate that was maintained. The respondent, Mr. Bouvier, didn't have to come before you. He could have simply abided by the court decision. He could have done just like what the, Madame Doyon did and not and choose what Miss Bizayon did, choose not to intervene. We are talking about the scope of confidentiality, the nature of the summary of the agreement, and would go abide by the court of appeal decision. I know that I'm, my time is almost up. Can I conclude? Thank you. We have learned from you that it's only during exceptional cases that parties should cover solitary client costs. The AMFQ is a nonprofit that was represented pro bono on appeal and before you, we have our financial statements and so on, which we can provide to you if you need. But in 2012, we know that the, Mr. Bouvier had a house that cost about 500,000, was making more than 100,000. So it's clear that he has more resources than AMFQ. We don't have cases where we represent the prosecutor, the attorney general, and so on. Question, by listening to you, we have great difficulty distinguishing the interests of your association and the interest of uh, the client. We are not asking you for anything. We are not asking to go back to first instance. What we are simply asking is to establish that there's a presumption that the exception was waived or, or the exception was set aside, and we are asking that it should be presumed that there was no agreement. And that goes against what uh, the gentleman says. We'll take a morning break, 15 minutes, please. La Cour, the court. Merci, soyez-vous. Thank you, be seated. Before proceeding to Ms. Biron, just a word to specify that Justices Abella and Karakatsanis are participating in this hearing. Ms. Biron. Excuse me, I was on mute. 
Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. We understood that the appellant was looking for an absolute presumption of confidentiality, which would exclude the settlement exception. The conditions are strict and if confidentiality were to be waivable, that would have to be clearly set out in the mediation contract. And the mediation process cannot lead to an agreement that one party could uh, insist on implementing. The respondent submits that the remedies sought, the relief sought by the appellant would have a very prejudicial effect on spouses participating in family mediation and would call into question the whole usefulness of mediation and ultimately would be harmful to the justice system. So I will deal with those points one by one and explain why the appellant's position cannot be upheld. And then I will go through the legal principles and the analysis. And finally, we will deal with the summaries of matters agreed upon and the circumstances in which those summaries and other evidence could be adduced to establish that an agreement had been reached. From the very beginning, I'd like to indicate that we do not in any way question the relevance and the essential nature of confidentiality in family mediation and the settlement privilege. We agree with the appellant that confidentiality is an essential component of mediation because that allows the parties to have frank discussions knowing that any concessions, admissions, or discussions that take place there cannot be held against either party in court. And in the vast majority of cases, confidentiality is maintained. The parties will reach an agreement and they will proceed and act accordingly. Or the parties will not reach a settlement. And in that case, everything that transpired in mediation will remain confidential. It's only in very rare circumstances that the this exception is applicable when a party challenges or denies the existence of a settlement or a deal that was reached then the exception is absolutely necessary because we have to recall that the settlement privilege is a right that the parties enjoy and the exception allows the parties to establish the terms and conditions of a settlement and the public interest is the same as the interest in confidentiality and that is to promote settlements encourage settlements so the parties need to have the means to prove the terms of an agreement in cases where that is necessary and that's the whole raison d'etre for this exception. 
And if that exception were not available, there would be no other way for the parties to prove that there was an agreement. Ms. Biron, can I just ask you one question? Imagine in this case if there had not been this evidence about the implementation of an agreement. If there had been no checks cashed and no emails exchanged, and if the summary was not signed, what would happen then? Well, it would depend. It would be on a case-by-case -case basis. The settlement exception allows a party to adduce in evidence only that which is necessary to demonstrate the existence and scope of an agreement. Obviously, that's at the judge's discretion what evidence will be admitted and what won't. There could be cases where the admissibility of a document is obvious on the very face of it. For example, there could be a note in the summary that says it's an agreement in principle and that the parties reserve the right to consult legal counsel before consenting. So in that case, there would, no be, there would be no initial consent that would bind the parties. There could be all kinds of circumstances, and I don't want to get into every possible scenario, but I, what, what I want you to understand is that the summary, if it's unsigned and has not been implemented, it will really depend on the circumstances. Let me give you an example. If there had been one or two mediation sessions and there was a summary of matters agreed upon prepared by the mediator uh, that's complete and the parties agree at the end of the session that they're going to go to the notary or the lawyer to draw up uh, a proper official written contract and the appointment is made with the lawyer but one of the parties decides not to go. The other party says, no, wait a second, we had, a, we had a, a deal. And the parties go to court to try to have that deal certified or approved. Can that party then use the summary of mediation uh, in order to prove that a deal had been reached? Well, in theory, that might be possible because those people had at the very least an oral agreement. And as we all know, you can enter into a valid agreement orally. But it would be a very rare case, Madam Justice, what the case, the situation you're mentioning, it would be very rare that there was no other evidence. And it would be very difficult to prove an oral agreement uh, given the burden of proof and the uh, preponderance of evidence that there an agreement had been reached. There are limits to testimonial evidence when you try to prove a legal act or a legal deed. There's a, a quantum limit and so on. Well, isn't the law of evidence what would settle the matter? It's a the resume, the summary is a written document, a simple written document. So you still have, would have to establish that there was an agreement. And for any matter over $150,000, the law of evidence would apply. And Union Carbide is a case dealing with uh, the, rule of, the rules of evidence. Yes, precisely. It's a, it's a first step. If you want a finding that there was an agreement and that the parties are bound by that agreement, 
but after that there's a second stage which would be the implementation of the agreement. Well I suppose the reason for the question is does this mean that anything is there anything about family mediation that should change things? Does family mediation have an effect on the law of evidence and these rules of settlement privilege and so on? The appellant thinks that the fact that this is family mediation gives confidentiality a higher value or a higher importance given the parties involved and the challenges in accessing justice in the area of family law. In other words, does union carbide apply in a family context? Absolutely. The rules of evidence are the same whether it's family law or civil law. So I don't see why the teachings of union carbide would not apply to a matter that comes out of family mediation. Well, someone could say, I'm going to use the summary drafted by the mediator to try to show that there was an agreement. Obviously, if the mediator says there's no agreement, we can assume that the parties aren't idiots. They're not going to go to court to try to prove that there's a deal when the mediator says there wasn't one. But if the mediator said the parties agreed on the following points, your position is that union carbide would apply Yes. And so a party could go to court with the summary and perhaps other evidence to try to demonstrate that there was an agreement. And you're saying that the same rules of evidence apply, we're governed by those. So you can use the summary, but everything would go to the weight the judge would attach to that document. Exactly. I think we also need to remember, Madam Justice, that the legislator has not provided for a tougher confidentiality framework around family mediation than in other areas. So I don't see why we couldn't apply union carbide to a family mediation case. Thank you, but the point made by Justice Doyon is that the uniqueness of the situation stems from the fact that counsel is not present, cannot participate in mediation sessions. As my colleague said this morning, they can consult a lawyer before or after, but lawyers do not participate in the mediation sessions per se. So in Union Carbide, the court stressed the fact that the parties were properly instructed by, properly advised by counsel. Yes, we agree that when negotiations begin in the family mediation context, the circumstances are unique and they may sometimes be difficult and emotional. We're aware of that. But the legislator's choice was that legal counsel were not to be there with the parties during mediation sessions. The legislator's choice was that the parties together should be able to find the best solutions for their family. 
and that's in that's consistent with the philosophy of our civil code the philosophy of participatory justice or the empowerment of the parties that's the idea it's important and what that terminology reflects is the fact that the parties themselves are in the best position to know what they need so the parties are able to enter into a contract even though the situation is not always an easy one but they do have some protection they have legal protection but they also have protection within the mediation process itself the mediator is a professional a neutral party impartial and according to the association's guide has to play a role and that role I'll just deal with some of the highlights some of the features of that role the mediator guides the parties to a fair agreement points out any unfairness ensures that there's informed consent and that an agreement is understood by the parties and the mediator also indicates in the draft agreement if there's any prejudice to either party and as you mentioned quite rightly earlier the mediator can also put a stop to the process at any time if it's apparent that one party is vulnerable or if there's an imbalance of power such professionals could resolve the inequalities that you've mentioned in this case the dispute concerns sharing assets and compensation between common law partners governed by civil law. Assets could be shared by agreement on a table at home or go before a notary without getting judgment. They could go see a mediator and it's even better and they can also see a civil mediator and not a family mediator and in this case they could be able to show proof of any agreements agreed upon because they did it themselves or because this was done in civil mediation and what the association the appellant is telling us is that this could not be the case because the parties chose family mediation whereas they were even better guided to be able to go through the process. Yes, it is true that there are moments of vulnerability. Let me remind you as well that we are talking about common law partners and even, even it's not clear on the file, we should rule, know that when it comes to common law partners, The, there's no public law question. Is it not true that in Quebec the significant presence of common law partners with children creates the possibility of problems? Let's take an example like the one we have before us sharing a building, a family residence, that is co-owned, there's a link to be made between ownership of the building and the well-being of the children potentially. So the questions are tied. 
So to simply say that the people are not married, so they cannot, following a breakup, go before a judge for divorce to be pronounced in a civil case doesn't actually change the vulnerable nature of a common law spouse or the situation of the children. Do you see the problem here? Answer, yes. It's not necessarily the problem that we have in this case. Let me, however, tell you that a judge hearing such a case will be able to decide depending on the, the public policy and the best interests of the kids. It's, it's not because they would be able to present the fruit of the agreement made that the judge will not have a role to play. The judge can see whether the agreements fall in line with public policy and the interest of the kids are compromised. In the new Divorce Act that was recently enacted, you may have realized that the judge has the obligation to be made aware of any agreement made by the parents when it comes to parenting. The judge would consider the parenting plan proposed, but he or she will still need to make sure that everything is consistent with public policy and with the best interest of the kids. Question, unless I'm mistaken, so the new Divorce Act doesn't relate to unmarried spouses. Answer, you are right. It doesn't help unmarried spouses, but when there's a dispute regarding parenting for unmarried spouses, it still falls under public policy and the courts could intervene. Unfortunately, Justice Kazira, that's the legal situation in Quebec. I will not comment on this very controversial matter in the province and being a, and a topical issue at the moment. Question, may I ask a question? Of course. Question, my colleague, Justice Kazira, asked a question that was theoretical, though without the emails, without the checks, what happens with an agreement or a summary of an agreement? You said it depends on circumstances. That I understand. Another potential circumstance could be important, even if we apply a union carbide, the reminder Let me present the introduction in the reminder when it says that the spouses are informed that the draft agreement, and I like this sentence a lot because it's a draft agreement. The draft agreement neither constitutes a contract nor a judgment, and as a result, it can have no legal effect. It's not necessarily a contract, but it's a warning to people who have no legal counsel saying, if you have an agreement, if you have the intention to go to court, 
you or if you want this to be binding legally you need to do something else maybe see a notary or seek judgment or even sign something as simple as signing the summary what do we do with people who do not do these things I know that here we have things that constitute a recognition of a prior agreement but in other cases should we take it that people who discuss with a mediator who is not necessarily a legal expert what do we do with such cases is there really an ex an agreement do they need to take other steps to make sure that their agreement is legally recognized answer if I understood you well first of all as I said a while ago it will be up to the discretion of the courts when someone wants to submit that there was an agreement for that determination to be made they would have to meet the burden of proof of course but mediators as you said a while ago are not necessarily legal experts but let's not forget something mediators whether they are legal experts or not those who are not experts have the same training by the way they have to make sure that when the parties arrive at an agreement I don't see this as a thought as the appellant said when there's a summary of the agreements it says what it says it's a summary of the agreements but the mediator must make sure that the mediators give their free and informed consent when they accept the terms of that agreement a while ago we talked about the different roles that a mediator has to play actively in the process there are several sessions held in which the parties participate between sessions they could get more information consult a lawyer as you said of course it is possible for people going through the mediation process to make sure that when there's a summary of the agreements it should be written down in a free and informed way question from what my colleague asked I undertake it that where there is effectively an agreement the mediator understands and summarizes the essential points of the agreement but to follow up on the agreement there are actions that are made checks sent out you have to go before a notary so the terms of the agreement have to be implemented it's not because other things have to be done that evidence cannot be demonstrated that there was no that there was an agreement of course it will be difficult it will be difficult if there's nothing else there's nothing written down no signing of the summary of the agreement no action taken no checks it would be extremely difficult as I said before maybe the burden of proof will not be met there's a simple way of resolving this issue there could be a clear clause written saying that 
only a written and signed agreement would be valid and binding on the parties. If we had such a clause, as you said in Union Carbide and Alberta, if my memory is correct, I think that is why the agreement was not tabled because there was no consent that took into account all those conditions. So the agreement and the signing of the agreement, I'm referring to Stewart versus Stewart, which the Chief Justice referred to in the Union Carbide decision. It could be resolved with such amendments. Question, even with such an amendment, this is not binding on the judge when it comes to matters of public policy. Exactly. When I was thinking about the appellant's application, of course, it comes up with, we have some relevant issues that are raised, but I am not certain that the parties, when negotiating their mediation contract, could waive contractually the settlement agreement clause because the judge has the right to have an overall picture of the situation or the discussions between the parties, even during mediation, to be able to determine the various questions before him or her, whether they have to do with public policy or not. So the Superior Court has a right of oversight and review. I believe the parties contractually could even think, as you propose in Union Carbide, well, not in family cases, they could formally set aside some exceptions to mediation. Question. Ms. Biron, is there a nuance to be made here with Union Carbide? Answer, yes. Question. In, in a union, there was an agreement. It's possible that if there were an agreement, it'd be considered tran a transaction. According to Section 2631 of the Code, but in family matters, the, an agreement reached after mediation, even if proved according to Union Carbide, the judge will still have the last word when it comes to matters of public policy. Exactly. I agree with you. Question. To follow up on my colleague's question, particularly the question asked by Justice Martin, Union Carbide confirms that the settlement exception could be set aside using a confidentiality clause. So we need to start with an, an interpretation of the agreement to find out if there's a conflict between the exception and the clause. Here, the mediation contract says in clause in 10 that the summary is not a legal document nor a binding agreement but in clause 8 it is stated that the document after arriving we arrive at after mediation cannot be produced in evidence the only exception mentioned in the contract has to do with signing of the 
summary by the parties. How can we therefore think that she did not want to set aside the exception to the agreement? First of all, if we compare the clauses in question, 8 and 10, as you mentioned, and the union carbide clause, the first instance court, as well as the Court of Appeal, considered that this was simply recognition of the confidentiality principles which did not waive the exception. Question. But the union carbide exception was in a different context, a unique context, as you mentioned. So, especially in the absence of legal counsel, the application of union carbide and the terms of the contract have to be examined in the specific context. It's very different from the facts and the context of union carbide. Well, listen, what I would say is the summary, well, it's very broad. The exception to agreements makes it possible to prove in various ways, not just via the summary. The summary is not the be-all and end-all. That's not all the evidence there is. It's not all that's relevant or that could be adduced into evidence to prove that there had been an agreement. The parties, when they enter into mediation, their expectation is indeed that it will be confidential, but they enter in good faith into this process and their intention is truly to settle. And so given all that, if their goal is to settle, even though confidentiality must be maintained, the exception must be available in cases where it's necessary to have that exception. De toute façon, dans le... At any rate, in the mediation contract in the case at bar, they didn't use the term waiver. Waiver is used elsewhere in the contract in referring to having the mediator testify. But the term waiver does not appear in the contract of mediation, the mediation contract. Alors, what I also wanted to mention was that the appellant would like to impose a significant burden on the parties who are not accompanied by counsel. We acknowledge that. The burden of including uh, a, a clause in the contract. But people don't have the bargaining power in this context. When parties show up in front of a mediator who's presenting a standard form contract to them in order to launch a mediation process, well, the parties aren't capable. They're, they don't have the wherewithal to negotiate from the very outset 
the signature of a clause that would include the agreement exception. That would be asking a lot from lay parties entering into a process in good faith to expect them to start right off the bat negotiating clauses to make the process more ironclad to prevent a party from getting around or acting in bad faith and not implementing any agreement that they ultimately will reach. Well, I'd like you bring you back to the question of Justice Karakatsanis. What you've just said, doesn't that explain some of the reticence of Justice Boyon? Because he stressed the fact that the parties are not represented by counsel during mediation. They're vulnerable potentially. So they know how important it is to protect confidentiality, but without getting into the, the, the lay people don't know the ins and outs of union carbide and the complexities of, of a case like that. So Justice Doyon proposed that the settlement privilege exception would not apply unless the evidence showed that that was what the parties wanted. In other words, union carbide may apply, but you have to demonstrate that that was truly what the parties wanted, what the lay parties wanted. What do you have to say to that? Look, personally, when it comes to opting out, I prefer the opting in option rather than the opting out option because that clause, the exception clause, is a protection. It's a form of protection for the parties, which would only come up in exceptional circumstances. Most parties abide by the terms of their agreement, and I think it would be much better, and I respect those who differ, but uh, opting out, like you mentioned, of union carbide is much healthier for, uh, for parties to a family mediation. That's a process that is put in place on the assumption that they will act in good faith and on the assumption that ex-partners can compromise and come up with solutions. This exception is not a harmful concept. It's not a negative thing at all, as the appellant would claim. On the contrary, it's something that protects participants in exceptional circumstances. Well, I would say the existence of this exception actually acts in favor of mediation because if you tell the parties when they show up, whatever you say, regardless of what you offer up here, whether or not it's accepted, it's meaningless. You won't be able to talk about it. Even if you do reach an agreement, you'll never be able to mention that. So a party might say, well, what's the point then? Why am I going to offer up things if whatever we agree to can never be referred to subsequently. So what would, wouldn't it, doesn't the exception actually justify or encourage mediation? Uh, we could even go further and talk about the years of uh, delays and the costs of access to justice. So preventing, totally preventing the option for parties 
the, the, their capacity to prove that a deal was reached in order to accelerate access to justice, isn't that something that would actually run counter to everything that's been written in the area of access to justice in Quebec and Canada? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. When parties enter into family, family mediation, what they want to do is avoid delay, avoid hardship, avoid costs, avoid the stress of litigation. And often they simply can't afford to go through the whole litigation process. So that's the context. That's why they sign mediation agreements. Parties don't expect the other party to subsequently deny down the road a few years later because things had gotten worse. They don't expect the other party to deny the existence of an agreement. The purpose of mediation under the code, this Code of Civil Procedure, is to help parties look for solutions and ultimately reach a mutually satisfactory settlement if possible. And even the parties, before, even in the case at bar, the parties acknowledged that they understood the purpose of mediation for a couple to reach a settlement even though they've decided to no longer live together. And so the idea is to help couples find solutions. And they have to have confidence in the usefulness of mediation and the smooth operation of the process. And the public interest, as you mentioned, is to promote alternative dispute me resolution mechanisms. And this is a priority. So if people no longer trust the system, if they no longer trust mediation, what's going to happen? Well, lawyers will not recommend it to their clients. People will wind up in court. The courts already are overloaded. And this would obviously go against the philosophy of participatory justice, which the legislator has set out as a principle. And this would discourage people from pursuing family mediation. In that context, if you compare this case to a commercial case, in a commercial case, the parties are represented by counsel. They may have different interests. And in the case before us, if the parties knew there was a, an exception to the, rather in union carbide, the parties knew there was an exception to confidentiality. But in a family case, there may be children involved, there may be vulnerable spouses. It seems to me that there's all the more reason to allow evidence of the existence of an agreement. A judge can decide whether the evidence bears that out or not, but it seems to me that it's all the more important in a family context. Absolutely. But we're at the first step here where the party is seeking to prove that there was an agreement and then it will all follow its course based on the rules of public interest and the best interests of the child and the rules of evidence 
and the courts will do what they have to do. They'll supervise and ensure that the parties respect public order. In the new Divorce Act and the new code, as the Civil Code used to do, but now the federal parliament has, has said that the parties have to use mediation or other options to attempt to settle out of court. Before that, under the former Divorce Act, Section 9, the only connection to mediation was the fact that lawyers were required to inform their clients that mediation was a possibility, was an option. So I fully agree with you that society has evolved and it's all the more important. This is all the more important. Imagine if people went all the way through mediation, it's emotionally difficult, you might have five or ten sessions, uh, depending on whether you continue after the government subsidy runs out, and then the parties reach a settlement, and then, and I repeat, people are acting in good faith, so it's very exceptional that someone would deny that they had reached an agreement and you would deprive the parties of the ability to prove that there was an agreement, what would happen then? They'd be forced to go to court. They'd have to, they'd be dragged through that lengthy process, which was, the whole point was to avoid that in the first place. People who enter into mediation in a family context, they're not all people that are going to get their agreement homologated. Uh, when you have common law couples, unmarried couples, just because they don't get it approved by a court doesn't mean that they don't see it as a binding agreement, that they have responsibilities, uh, that they have to implement it. So we have to keep in mind that not everyone is going to go all the way before court to get their agreement homologated. But the results on the whole have been excellent and since your decision in Union Carbide, as was noted, there have been many decisions. Judges have implemented your teachings very well when it comes to this exception uh, and mediation is more popular than ever and I think if we change the rules then we run the risk of encountering problems. People are operating well under the current rules Obviously, when people go into mediation, the parties aren't necessarily happy when they fall into this exceptional circumstance. This, this, but I would, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but I would think it would be less than 5% of couples that find themselves in this situation, but I don't think they'd like to have to go all the way back to the starting point. They, at least they'd have, this way they have a chance at proving that they had reached an agreement. You are saying that many common law partners do not show up for homologation of agreements. There's a distinction between uh, what is binding between the parties and the binding nature of an agreement. If the Supreme Court says do not consider that distinction, will be 
will not be making sense if there's an agreement, for example, that has to do with the well-being of the children. It would not be enforceable without the inter intervention of the judges, technically speaking. Not so exactly. And it's the judge that will have the final word to determine whether the agreements reached by the parties meet the best interests of the children. But here, I'm sorry, I just want to finish what I was saying. Here we are talking about admissibility in evidence. It exists. The agreement exists. And the court must be able to read it to be able to determine whether it falls in line with public policy or meets the best interests of the children. Question. If I were to accept that the results are, that the outcome is excellent, maybe it's because of the fact that if there's a real agreement and the parties find the terms that were discussed during the agreement, they could sign the summary. That simple. Here, in the present case, we have a summary which the parties chose not to sign, nor sign, nor transfer into an agreement that is enforceable. What should we make of the facts in this case where the summary is not signed by the parties? And how do we justify that? Answer, it is desirable, I must say, that parties sign the agreements that will resolve many issues. But let's not deny the fact that there could be agreements like in your case, there was an agreement. Fortunately, there were surrounding circumstances which led the court to be able to determine that there was an agreement indeed and that, that was binding on the parties because the, there was an exchange of emails, a check was cashed out, that all that happened long after the agreement was reached after, during the mediation process. Of course, when, when implementation of an agreement has started, as in this case, this confirms the fact that the parties were willing to be bound by the agreement that was reached after the mediation. And as you said on several, uh, on several occasions, there were warnings indicating to the parties that they should be careful if they chose to implement the agreement because it could mean there were it would mean that they were acknowledging the agreement yes we need to look at all relevant points in each case in this case it appears it's very clear that there was an agreement between the parties but in some cases it's not clear it's not because a summary of the agreements is not signed that it will not become relevant at some point and that a court could consider it when it considers 
other facts and actions by the parties arising from mediation or following mediation. Question. You will talk about your application on solicitor client cost. Yes. Let me start by saying that the public has trust in the mediation process. My client, Mr. Bouvier, accepted to participate in a mediation process with his former spouse, Ms. Bizayon, to get to a rapid settlement, avoiding delays, stress, to find a compromise so that he could demonstrate that he could have effective communications, they could have effective communication for the benefit of the children. When he opted for mediation, he believed in its uh, relevance and effectiveness. He could never imagine that this same alternative set, uh, dispute settlement avenue that existed to facilitate things would be the source of the problems he's, ha he's had to go through for nine years. Our client is seeking final confirmation of what was freely negotiated in 2002 with the participation of accredited mediators. The decision of your honorable court would also have an impact on other common law spouses in Quebec who would like to resort to mediation instead of going to the courts. So I'm asking you today, after that long preamble, to grant cost, solicitor client cost to Mr. Bouvier, irrespective of the outcome of this case, considering that the appellant, who was not a party to the case, interfered and made it a test case raising issues which could go beyond the scope of, of the respondent. And the respondent is not here before you today. Question, what do you say to what um, Ms. Tramley said? She said it wasn't necessary for Mr. Bouvier to intervene. Answer. If you were to look at the appellant's brief, the conclusions, it's maintaining the objection raised by Ms. Bizayon at first instance. It was dangerous if he were not to intervene. Of course, we are here to defend the rights of our client, but also to make sure that Action is taken against the conclusion sought here to maintain the first instance conclusion. It's Bizayon who should have been an appellant here, not the association. We talked about many things, so let me try to find the right uh, references.
Let me come back to the applicable legal principles, principles, particularly the analytical framework that could be considered. Bouvier, Mr. Bouvier respectfully submits that the principles written in your Union Carbide case should continue to apply. The exception, exception could be invoked unless the, there's a clear and express waiver, and of course, within the limits of public policy. I have also indicated that I do not believe the parties could adopt a, an absolute confidentiality clause that would deprive the court of its oversight powers. I've referred to the fact that in the Divorce Act, at different stages, the court has to take into account agreements reached between the parties during mediation. Ms. Biron, I'm sorry, I have to follow up on the relevant question asked by my colleague, Justice Brown. Can we not plead for someone else? Can the association claim what it's claiming in this case? Does it have any interest in claiming what it's claiming, even as an intervener? Answer, I do not believe so, Mr. Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, I cannot say, I cannot avoid responding to that for the benefit of our client. I found that quite peculiar because as you clearly said, we see that the interests of the association are closely tied to those of Ms. Bizan. It's not the same legal, legal person, exactly. Question. If I may, let me come back to the question of access to justice, not in this case, but in general. In the family context, is access of justice not served by allowing spouses to make mistakes and to modify their request over a period of time, maybe a summary may be signed by the parties at some point. I'm not talking about this case specifically. I'm asking a more general question. Answer. Uh, I agree with you, but when parties embark on mediation, the purpose is to find a compromise. I don't believe their purpose is to test things or make errors, they could provide for a clause that allow for changes in the future. But I believe that when they embark on mediation, family mediation, the purpose is to find a final solution depending on the decisions they made, except maybe for questions, question. But there are two stages. First of all, find a solution and secondly, come up with an agreement. Answer, yes, indeed, there are two stages. I agree with you. What they want initially is to make sure that they can come up with an agreement and then move on to implementation of the agreement. I agree with you on that. Question, any further arguments? Answer, what I would like to say is that
if this honorable court doesn't want to implement the strict decision of Union Carbide, I submit that the analysis made by the first instance court judges more based on the principle that arose from La Ferrière, La Bonté, which provides that a party could implicitly waive its the exception because of its action. So there's an express and implicit waiver because of any action taken. I think this could help us as well. And this could be a framework that is a higher standard for us to follow. And maybe the court could be interested in this approach. In our opinion, the outcome will be just as satisfactory. That is what I wanted to mention about that. Is that all? If you're done, answer. Of course, what is important for you to understand as well is that you, we are asking as well that the appeal be thrown out and we are asking that the Superior Court and Court of Appeal decisions be confirmed and that the current appeal be uh, rejected. Réplique. Oui. Alors. Ms. Sherm, reply. I'd specifically like to hear you answer the question I asked your friend, which is whether your client had standing to request the relief sought. The answer is yes, Mr. Mr. Chief Justice. We simply asked for her objection to be upheld. We're not asking to go back uh, and open this case up again. That's up to the to Ms. Bizayon to do. We simply wanted to object to confidential documents being adduced in evidence. So uh, uh, that's all we're asking. Yes, but doesn't the confidentiality belong to the party, the parties themselves? Well, it belongs to the mediators too, our members, and the assurance that confidentiality will be respected is part of the law. Well, who is the beneficiary of confidentiality? The parties, the parties, and I would say in this case indirectly the mediator as well because uh, if confidentiality is not protected, is not protected, then the mediator could wind up in court having to testify. I would also say, just to clarify, that when we, the suggestion that we would be undermining mediation is quite the opposite. When parties don't agree, there's no settlement and this happens and then you have to go see a lawyer and seek the court option. That's poor, that's, Door number one. Door number two, you consult, you don't agree uh, in mediation, so then you see lawyers and then you, you, you give up on mediation and you try to get the lawyers to create an agreement. 
I know that there are people who don't go to lawyers following mediation. They have a status quo that may last for a certain amount of time, but if, uh, if necessary, they may ultimately go before the courts. But that's what happens after mediation. But mediation needs to be protected because if there's no agreement, and one colleague suggested that the terminology should be changed, if there's no agreement, who says no one can change their mind a week or two after mediation? So if we want to confirm that there are agreements that can be done subsequently, this is a space where if confidentiality is lifted, people will not take the same approach. They will not have the same open and frank discussions. The parties will never enter into this process. If it's so important, then people would sign the agreement. If the agreement was so substantial, people would sign it. And Justice Doyon, at paragraph 15 of his judgment, said that, that you have to take into account all the circumstances and presume that people taking part in family mediation will want this exception excluded because of all the information that was provided to the parties, to these lay people. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. I'd like to thank counsel. The court will reserve judgment. The court is adjourned. Good day.